Um, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit. If you've been visiting with us the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm actually the, 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 com, the preacher who preaches here regularly, and I'm excited to be bringing you God's Word. I'm also excited because not only because we've got our Utah missions team leaving, I'm getting a chance to preach again, but Amanda Warner and the kids are back with us. For after it's been six years, so it's good to see you guys. We spent some time Friday. Yeah, you guys remember the Warners, so they're back. So a lot of neat things. So as you know, um, my wife and I and our family's been on vacation. So um, it was, I, was, I was supposed to say, you know, as I said in the last couple uh, weeks, I've been even I've been on vacation, but I've been here, kind of, right? I know that's kind of confused some of you, but that's just how it goes. And I just kind of shared a little bit about what was going on. We were supposed to be on sabbatical. I was supposed to be on sabbatical this year, this summer, uh, but that got uh, uh, it change that that wasn't the case because of COVID. So Lord willing, it's going to be next year. So we decided to take a couple weeks off anyhow. And so I've been gone and we just had a wonderful time. Took the family up to the American River to do some whitewater rafting. And we had a great time, as you can see from Asher's face there. Uh, and it was just a wonderful time of being together with a family out in the woods. Kind of like Brett McCracken said about wisdom, right? Go to nature. You can find a lot of wisdom. And so we had a wonderful time on the raft on the river for about two days and camping for three days. And then the week after that, uh, my wife and I, how cool is this? We went motorcycle shopping. Yes. So, how, I mean, you know your wife loves you when she wants to go with you to shop for a motorcycle. I got to trade in my Honda Rebel and got my dream bike. Oh, that's a close-up of his face. Yes, you gotta love that face. But I've got my dream bike, a Triumph Street Twins. So I'm so happy about that. So I've been riding around and just enjoying the goodness of God. And I mean, that's like mechanical art on wheels. It is so beautiful. It goes so fast. I love it. Anyway, so that's what I've been doing the last couple of weeks, being with my family, running around on my motorcycle. It's been wonderful. But now coming back, as I said, I was supposed to be on sabbatical and kind of thought, okay, what do we do now that I'm not? I had a, a sabbatical series planned, but I had to change that. And so I told you we're going to do something called leftovers. And basically, some series we taught on in this, the year, there were some thoughts I couldn't get to. So we're going to do that this summer. So a couple of weeks, starting today, uh, on the church, picking up our series, Who Do Christians Think They Are? You remember that? And there were a couple of things I didn't get a chance to talk about. Well, I'll talk about that th today and the week after that. Then we're going to dive back into our series on the Holy Spirit. Spirit, because there are other things we didn't get a chance to really unpack, like the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, and particularly two of the gifts of the Spirit that are kind of controversial, the gift of tongues and prophecy, and how does that fit today in the modern church? So we're going to do that. And then a five-week series on emotions that I'm really looking forward to. And then we jump back into the fall on our study of the book of Romans, starting that second. We're going to do the second section of Romans, which is basically chapter 5 all the way up through chapter 8. And if you're familiar with Romans, that is a profound section of the book of Romans. Because as deep as we had to go in chapters 1 through 3 about man's sin, and we got to that crescendo of the gospel in chapter 4 and justification by faith, we had to kind of stop there. But chapter 5 picks up that theme of peace with God. And now what does that mean in Christ? And it's amazing. And it ends like almost with a climax at the end of chapter 8. So I'm excited to get to that. And then we're right up to the Advent season. Uh, last year, we, we typically, as we do every other year, we shift it. Last year, we just kept our study through the book of Revelation. Well, this year, we're going to do a five-week series for Advent, and I'm excited about it. It's taken right from one of the Christmas hymns, The Weary World Rejoices, because our world is pretty weary right now. And, and that's what Advent should lead us to, is remember, not to, not to ignore the reality of the world, but to re recognize it is a weary place, but there's still reason to rejoice. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for Advent. 
So that's kind of what we're looking at for the really the next part of the, the rest of this year. I'm looking forward to jumping into it. Now, as we get to uh, talking about our series on the church again, there's a lot of things we could talk about, and we did in that five-week series, Who Do Christians Think They Are? But I want to spend the next two weeks talking on something that's really important, and that is leadership, leadership in the church. To quote the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle, his famous quote, whenever people gather, leadership matters. Wherever and whenever people gather, leadership matters. People will either flourish or they will perish under leadership. And that's really true. That's true of governments. That's true of companies. That's true of families. And the church is no different. Leadership does matter. So the question we have to ask is, what kind of leadership does God require for his most treasured prize? And that's his people. That's you. What kind of leadership does he require? Is, is it the most effective and efficient form? So we're going to rip a play out of the business world page, uh, playbook and have a charismatic CEO at the top issuing commands that all the middle managers carry out that particular vision, right? Kind of a, a modern-day Moses model leading God's people into new promised land, one man calling the shots. You know, a lot of churches buy into that model, and we have them around today, not necessarily because that's the biblical model, but because that model produces results. But like John MacArthur says in his book, um, The Master's Plan, it's a book about the church, one-man leadership is more characteristic of cults than the Lord's church. On the other hand, then, is the other extreme what we want, where everyone, kind of one member, one vote, it's a total democracy, the kind of uh, thinking of all, all is level at the foot of the cross kind of thinking, where everyone gets to decide everything. Well, there are some churches who buy into that model too, but they are so busy deciding, voting, and deliberating, they don't have much time for discipleship, so those churches don't seem to exist as much today. Thankfully, we don't have to settle or decide just between a total dictatorship on the one hand or a total democracy on the other. There is a pattern we see in Scripture of God's pattern of leadership for His people, and it's always been the same. A model of leadership where God leads His people through a plurality of representative leadership. In the Old Testament, we had this in the form of the prophet, the priest, and the king, and the elders of the people of Israel. In the New Testament, we have the elders of the people of God, with Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophet, priest, and king. If you notice, the one constant office between those two are the elders of God's people. Whether it's in the Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church, the one office that remains the same are the elders. So this morning and next week, that's what we're going to focus on. This morning, we're going to answer two questions and see an example. What is an elder, right? What is that office? What do they do? And we're going to look at the life of Paul as the elder example par excellence. And then next week, what we're going to do is talk about how, does, how do elders and congregations interact together. So that's what we're going to do. Have a, if you have, don't have a Bible, get it open. Uh, mm, trying to think. We're going to jump around a lot. Go to the pastoral epistles. So first, second Timothy, Titus. Um, and then really what we're going to do is camp on Acts chapter 20, but that's a little bit later. I just want to prepare you that we'll be in the pastoral epistles a little bit. So let's ask, let's ask our first question. What is an elder? See, the one term that we use 
to distinguish this office in the church is really one of three words that the Bible uses to define what we call an elder. Now, as a result of this, depending upon your background, you know, some of you come from different church backgrounds or none at all, you may have heard in certain branches of Christianity uh, referring to its leaders by various titles. So, for example, um, bishop or overseer, right? Bishop's a common one. Pastor in our kind of environment is typically the term we use, or elder. Now, some denominations, believe it or not, their entire denomination is signified by the leadership of the church. So, for example, you have Presbyterians or Episcopalians. Those two entire denominations get their name derived from the leadership structure they have of their church. So the Presbyterian comes from the word elder or presbyteros. We'll talk about that later on. Episcopalians comes from the word bishop or episcopae, respectively. So as we talk about leadership in the church, it's probably important that we actually define a little bit of what exactly we're talking about. And so let's clarify the title. Now, in the Old Testament, and particularly the New Testament, the Bible refers to God's people, or the leaders of God's people, in three different ways. The first one is this. It's a common term. I just referred to it. And that is the word elder. Elder comes from the Greek term presbyteros. Now, the word presbyteros, or elder, has a lot of different kinds of nuances. For one, it can just refer to an an older man, as in 1 Timothy 5.1. Do not rebuke an older man, an elder, a presbyteros, but encourage him as you would a father. So it can be used of just referring to an older gentleman. Secondly, it's the title of a community leader. And when it's used that way, age isn't implied as much as experience and maturity and and the honor by which this gentleman carries himself. So in that sense, 28 times presbuteros, or the plural form of that, presbuteroi, refers to the Sanhedrin. Are you familiar with that term from the Gospels and the book of Acts? The Sanhedrin were the collected leadership of the people of Israel, and 28 times they're referred to as the elders. Twelve times in Revelation is this term used to describe the 24 elders. You remember from our study of Revelation, the 24 elders in Revelation was a symbolic designation to all of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, representing the people of God in the Old Testament, the 12 disciples in the New Testament, representing the people of God in the New Testament. So 12 times this collective group of 24 elders are seen in the book of Revelation, and they're referred to as elders, presbyteros. 19 times in the book of Acts and the epistles, it it refers to a unique group of leaders that were leading God's church. Now, this term elder was predominantly used in Jewish culture as as a reference to those who led their people, the people of God. The term elder, by the way, it's not just to Jewish culture. In traditional cultures to this day, it's common to talk about the elders who lead their people. American Native, American Indians, for example, in Oceania, some in Samoa, you talk about the elders, they lead the people. So it's, it's not just a biblical concept, it's a, a concept used throughout history and cultures. So that's where we get the word elder, presbyteros. It's referring to a community leader. Then there's a second word that the Bible often uses to talk about leaders in the church, and it's a, it's a second word, episcopate. And this is where we get the word bishop or overseer. Episcopate is a Greek term. Excuse me, there we go. Episcopate is a Greek term, and it refers to an office holder or an official manager or ruler of some sort. 
In the Septuagint, which if you don't want to know what that is, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures that, that they had at that time. The word episcope would translate whenever in the Old Testament it talked about army officers or officers in the Lord's tabernacle, they would use the Greek word episcope, an official, a manager, a supervisor. One time it even refers to a city mayor. And so the word episcope is often used. In ancient Athens, this term was used to describe state officials who acted in a, in a supervisory role maintaining the public order. Now this word in the New Testament Five times we find it in the New Testament, one time referring to Jesus Christ himself. So it's interesting that, that, that this term that we use for managers or supervisors or public officials was actually used of Jesus Christ one time. Four times, and mostly in the more Gentile congregations, episcope is used to describe the leaders of the church, managing, supervisors, so to speak. There is a third term, the term that you're probably most familiar with, and that is the term poime, which we get the uh, word that we use, pastor, or sometimes translated as shepherd. Now, this word poime, talking about shepherds, is found 18 times in the Gospels. And most times, we, and that doesn't, that's not surprising because oftentimes in the Gospel narratives, shepherds were a big part of their culture and their, their, what was going on. So you see that term happen a lot. Three times pastor is used of Christ, or poime is used of Christ. And here's the surprising thing. Only one time in the New Testament is this word pastor ever used to describe church leaders. It's kind of funny. I've always thought it was odd that the, the term we use the most, the New Testament uses the least to describe leaders of the church. It's only used one time to describe leaders of the church. The term that's most often used, as you imagine, is presbuteros, elder. Three times, however, the word to shepherd is used as a verb. And I'll read them to you. I want you to notice the nuance of it. John 21, verse 16, Jesus is talking to Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, tend poime, my sheep. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul talking to the elders from Ephesus, he says to them, care poime for the church of God. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, where Peter's writing to other elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God. And so what you see is you know, the Bible uses these three titles, all used to describe those given responsibility to lead in God's church. Now, although there are three titles, they are all referring to the same office being spoken of. And we know this because every, when we look throughout the New Testament, these terms are used interchangeably. In other words, whenever we see elder, overseer, or, or shepherd, they're referring to the same office. So you got your Bibles open, right? Said so go to 1 Timothy. Look, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And while you're doing that, I'm going to get my Bible out here. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so we see Paul talking about episcope, overseer. But then look in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, or excuse me, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, this is what Paul says to uh, Titus. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
So in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, this is what you need to do. If anyone desires to be an overseer, that's, a, that's an admirable task. In Titus 1, he says, Titus, I left you there so that you can raise up elders. And then what Paul does in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is he lists all these qualifications of what an overseer should be and what an elder should be. And by and large, the qualifications are identical. So what an elder is, an overseer is. What an overseer is, an elder is. So we see that they're interchangeable. They're almost identical and serve the same purpose. Notice with me in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is what, what, what Paul writes. We just read that. This is why I left you in Crete. You put things in order and appoint elders. Now look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So in other words, he says, Titus, raise up elders and just interchangeably calls them overseers two verses later. And so we see in Paul's writing that these offices are referring to the same office. Now, I want you to really see this. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5. So keep going to a few books to the right. 1 Peter chapter 5. And here we have Peter, a leader of the church, writing to other elders of the church. And listen to what he says, and notice how he uses all three terms interchangeably. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So in this two verses, Peter's using all three titles, presbyteros, episcope, poimen, and he's just giving them a charge of how they are to conduct themselves. So what I'm saying is that all three of these titles, elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, shepherd, different words, all referring to the same office. Get that, right? So now it's reasonable to ask, if we've got all these terms referring to the same office, why use all these terms? Why not just use one word? Makes sense. Well, here's a couple reasons. Number one, the, the issue of ethnic transition of Christianity going from the Jewish belief system to, the, to what Christianity is, the fulfillment of Judaism, there was an ethnic switch. You see, the Hebrews understood leadership as coming from the elders. You see that all through the Old Testament. For example, here in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting. Again, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 1, now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So what we have is just an ethnic transition from the term that the, the Jews use, the Hebrews use, uh, to something that was more Gentile, because as the Christian faith expanded and became more and more Gentile, they needed to find a term that communicated the same kind of thing to the non-Jewish people, who didn't necessarily look to elders in the same way. And so the word that captured this idea of leading and governing and ruling was episcope, the overseer, the bishop. But the reason they didn't get rid of one word is that these words together brought nuances to the office that one word alone didn't quite capture. And so while they said, hey, episcope makes sense to our Gentile brothers and sisters, they get that word, let's start using that. What episcope didn't quite gather was the nuances of the word elder, or the communal sense, and, and vice versa. 
And so rather than abandon the words, because of the ethnic transition, they just kept adding to the words because it brought a full picture of what the leadership ought to look like in the church. So we could sum it up in this way. An elder describes who the man is, that he should be mature, experienced, that he should have integrity. Overseer speaks to what he does. He governs, he guides, he provides oversight. And shepherd or poime or pastor refers to how he carries out this task. He does it with care. He, he does it with concern, and he feeds people God's word. To sum it up, an elder is a mature, experienced man with integrity who governs the affairs of the church through the careful teaching of God's word. This is really important. You see, a church should not be led by just the leadership being a bunch of businessmen and, and board of trustees, so to speak, right? You, you don't want that. Now, I know we always have people visiting churches, so if you're visiting church, don't look for a church where, where the leadership is just a bunch of businessmen and trustees. Yeah, they might be episcopate, but that can lead to a really cold and sterile place. And by the way, that is the mistake of some of larger churches because they're a big organization. they got to run efficiently. But if you've ever been a part of that, sometimes it feels like you're just a cog in a machine. Now, don't make the other mistake going into the other ditch of looking for churches that the, the leaders are just all these like pastorally concerned people, but it's just an organizational nightmare, right? They, they really care, but the things are falling apart, and which is the problem of oftentimes smaller churches. So don't fall into one ditch of this really large church with just businessmen run it. It's efficient, but it doesn't feel like a family. Or the other side of the ditch, looking for a really small church where they really care, but everything's falling apart. There's a reason all three terms are used. Is that because all those things need to function well? And you see that all through the scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 6 is a perfect example of that, where the church was growing and, and they were caring really well, but because they were kind of not very efficient, things were starting to fall apart. So they raised up deacons to help with the situation. Right, that's another leadership office of the church that I haven't talked about, but we'll leave that alone. My point is, you want all those things happening. Oversight, care, right? Uh, leadership, all in the church. Okay, so that's what, elder, that's what an elder is. We've almost answered the second question. Then what do elders do? And really we can break it down to two words. Number one, govern. And number two, teach. Now there's a lot of passages of scripture we could look at, but time constrains us to just look at one. So I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. So let me read this and then we'll unpack it because here's where actually Presbyterians and we would disagree, which is why we have different forms of, um, kind of different forms of government, but they're very similar. Let me just read it to you. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay, so here, some people in our, like Presbyterians and our friends in the Reformed tradition believe that Paul is talking about two separate categories of elders. The elders who rule well and the elders who teach. So if you come from a Presbyterian background, you're familiar with ruling elders and teaching elders. I disagree. Many of us disagree with them for two reasons. Number one, Paul is not making a distinction between the elders. He's simply defining what it means to rule well. 
And the reason I say that is if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the adverb right after the comma, especially, can equally be translated to say um, that is or namely. So you read it like this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, that is, those who labor in preaching and teaching. In other words, Paul is not making a distinction. He's defining what it means to rule well. You rule well through your preaching and teaching. That's the first reason I disagree with the Presbyterian view. The second reason is this. In 1 Timothy 3, we looked at it a little while ago, all the elders are supposed to be able to teach anyway. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, the elders were have to have a sound grasp of doctrine to refute those who, who oppose them. In other words, Paul already said, all you elders need to be out there teaching. So it can't be that he's here saying, now there's elders who don't teach, but then give real honor to those who do. All elders are supposed to be teaching anyway. What Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy 5, 17, he's defining what does it mean to rule well? You're teaching the word of God consistently. So what that means, friends, is that the teaching ministry is part of what it means to be an elder. Now, that doesn't mean every elder is going to have a pulpit gift, so to speak. It doesn't mean that they're going to be dynamic communicators. It just simply means this, that elders, whether it's one-on-one counsel from God's Word or, or a community group or a Sunday school class, the way they are leading us, the way they are leading you, is by teaching you God's Word. And this protects and prevents us from being driven by popular practices or pragmatism or, or whatever's popular or tradition or even innovation, which can be very dangerous. An elder's job is to make sure the church is what the church is supposed to be, feeding and growing on God's Word. That's really important, right? Remember I talked about the ditch of, uh, of wanting... Um, uh, efficiently run churches or the ditch of, of wanting just a kind of family field church, it, it, you see this in the culture too, right? Is that you, I want to be gentle here, but, very, but make the point. You've heard churches are, they're kind of like Journey, the name of the church, Journey, and, and I don't know of a particular church named Journey, I'm just saying, Journey, church like never before, right? Or Revolution Church, doing church like never before, like remaking church, you've heard marketing that way. I'm just going to tell you, just keep on walking, right? Because if this one church has figured out how to do church after 6,000 years of the church being the church, that's not a very good thing, right? They're crashing into the ditch of innovation, church like never before, right? Reinventing church. No, I don't want you to reinvent it. Just give me what it has in the Bible, right? They're, they crash in the ditch of innovation. On the other hand, there's the other ditch of tradition, churches that are like, we don't do anything different ever, right? We don't even have a guitar because there's no guitar in the Bible, and we just read the King James Bible. That's it, right? They crash in the ditch of tradition. An elder's job is always to guard the church. I call it the, the third way, in, right in the gospel. Not, not crashing into this ditch, not crashing into that ditch, but being right there. And the way they do that is by teaching the Word of God to the people of God, and that's what they do constantly, over and over and over again. So we've seen the Scriptures talk about that. Now let's take a look of, of a model of that, and we're, for that we want to go to Acts chapter 20. And, and here we'll spend the rest of our time. 
So we've talked about what is an elder, right? We've talked about what they do. Now let's look for an example that, that bolsters that, and we see that in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, go to verse 17. So while you're turning there, let me set the stage. This is kind of the end of Paul's um, missionary career, and, and he's kind of winding it up. He, he is now going to Jerusalem, which will eventually lead him to Rome, which will eventually lead him to execution. And, and he has a sense that this is going to happen. He doesn't know the details, but he just kind of has a sense this is going to happen. So as he passes by, uh, he, he can't quite make it to Ephesus, so he gets to Miletus, but he calls the elders of the Ephesus church, the Ephesian church, come on down, come on down. And so they gather with him so he can talk to them. See, you see that in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he being Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So what we're going to see in verses 18, really the verse 31, is, is Paul's goodbye to this church that he loved and, and labored with for years and poured himself out with and saw amazing things happen. Remember the riot in Ephesus and they were trying to kill him and all the silversmiths were upset because the preaching of the gospel was ruining their business and they got all crazy. So Paul is saying, I have to go. Here's what you need to do. Here are your marching orders, you elders. And so what I want to read, and, and basically he says these are two things. He, he says, watch my example of this just diligence in the things we talked about. And then he issues a command, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So let's look at first Paul's example of his diligence uh, in verses 18 to 25. I'm just going to kind of read through them, not quickly, but just I'm not going to talk about, read and talk. I'm just going to read it to you. So the elders show up, and when they came to him, verse 18, Paul said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So this is it. And I just want to make this personal. If you've ever been in ministry, if you've ever done life with somebody through thick and thin, the good and the bad times, you've, you've laughed together, you've wept together, you've had your hearts full and broken together, and this is the last time he's going to see them. You know something of the, the tenderness that's here, the, the urgency. And call Paul here basically has kind of two examples or commands to be diligent, to be vigilant. And Paul commends his own diligence as an elder to them. You saw that there in verse 18 and 19. You see that there where he says, in the past, look to my past, you've seen how I've had just genuine humility right? And don't make mistake humility with being a wimp, right? That, that is not what humility is, because Paul was ferocious for the gospel. 
But he had this genuine humility that he cared for others more than he cared for himself, and he had this care that extended. So in the past, he says, you remember my genuine humility and my care for you, and then notice in the past how he was diligent to teach them. Look at verses 20 to 21. I mean, Paul taught everything about the gospel, he taught everywhere about the gospel, and he taught everyone about the gospel. It was gospel, gospel, gospel. Paul was a living embodiment of what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. It says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Paul was just being an example of the very thing he told Timothy to do. And friends, the reason why Paul as an elder was a teaching machine, the reason why elders as elders have to be teaching machines is because we're just trying to do what Jesus did, and Jesus was a teaching machine. This is what he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent, speaking of Jesus, this is Jesus, I was sent for this purpose. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, elders should be apt to teach. In Titus chapter 1, elders should be able to instruct. In fact, the, the teaching, proclamation, um, uh, word group occurs 100 times in the Gospels. You know, what draws our attention in the Gospels is kind of the miracles and the signs and wonders. Yeah, that, that's amazing. But 100 times this, this teaching, this preaching, this proclamation word group is all through the Gospels. So in the past, Paul says, you remember my life, how diligent I was to care for you. And, and, and to teach you the word. But he also says, but even now, look at the diligence that Paul says, I'm exercising now. And we see this in Paul's presence. And you see that in verse 22 and 23, his obedience. I am bound by the Holy Spirit to obey him. And notice what he says. Can you imagine this? He says, even though I know everywhere I go, I'm in for a tough time. Right? And yet, he, he's joyful to do it. Verse 22 and 23, and then finally, verse 24, his self-denial. He says, look, my life is not of an account. The only thing that matters is that I get to fulfill what God has had me to do. That's what matters. And friends, don't we see this resonating in the Gospels as well? You don't have to turn there, but isn't this what Jesus says about our obedience in Luke chapter 6, verse 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do what my words say is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So Paul is just simply saying, look, I'm being obedient because Christ himself was commanding obedience. And Paul is saying, I'm exercising self-denial because Christ himself demanded self-denial. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Simply put, what Paul is saying here is that a leader of God's people, an elder, 
is merely a living example of the written text. If you're a new Christian, or if you're a struggling Christian, or a confused Christian, and you don't know what it means to be a Christian, find an elder in our church and just watch them. And, and you don't have to be one-on-one -on -one discipleship. I remember I've shared my story with you. When I became a believer, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I came to this church. Actually, I helped start the church because I didn't know any better. So I wanted a teaching, a Bible teaching church, so I helped start it. And it, God drew all kinds of godly men. And I didn't have a clue about discipleship, so I would just watch these guys. How they love their wives, how they love their children. I didn't get one-on-one -on -one discipleship until a little bit later, but I was being discipled by all these men everywhere. If you want to know how to grow as a Christian and you don't know who to look to, just look at our elders. That's what an elder is, a living example of the written text. Now, Paul's diligence, as an elder's diligence, provides the authority to command, and that's what we see next in Paul's words as well here. Starting in verse 28 and 31, uh, let me read it to you. So, so he says all this, and then here it is, pay careful attention and he gives two, two qualifiers to that. To yourselves, first, very important, to yourselves, and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Notice all those titles being used interchangeably. Paul's command, first, watch out for yourself. You're, take care of your own spiritual life. Let me read to you from... Richard Baxter, one of my favorite Puritan uh, pastors, he wrote this in 1656. And he's writing to young men who want to be pastors, but friends, this is as applicable to fathers and mothers leading families, employers leading an example for your employees, to all of us. It's a little bit old English, so bear with me, but listen to what he says. Take heed to yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others, unless you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Will you make it your own work to magnify God, and when you have done, dishonor him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power, and yet contemn it, or treat it with contempt, and rebel yourselves? Will you preach his laws and willfully break them? Friend, if sin be evil, why do you live in it? If it be not, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without cause? Do you know the judgments of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death and yet you will do them? Thou that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself, Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery or be drunk or covetousness, are thou such thyself? What? Shall the same tongue speak evil that speakest against evil? Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin and yet do not overcome it. Lest while you seek to bring it down in others, you bow to it and become its slave yourselves. This is written to pastors, to elders, but you can clearly see how this is applicable to all Christians because if an elder is merely an example of a Christian, then by way of application, this is true to all of us. So Paul says, 
take heed, be careful about yourselves. And then in verse 28, notice that, and to the flock of God. Why, does, why, why do elders need to do that? Because verse 29, verse 29 gives the ground of verse 28. Because Paul says, savage wolves, after I'm gone, Paul says, savage wolves will come against the flock from outside the church. He's talking about persecution. And then savage wolves will come against the flock from within the church. He's talking about false teaching and division. An elder's job is to continue to protect the church and guide the church through the persecution that comes from the outside as well as the false teaching and division that may arise from the inside. And friends, if you were here in our study of Revelation, we very well clearly see that elders need to protect the people of God from both of these realities symbolized by the beast. You remember that? Revelation chapter 3, speaking of the state. Like the encroaching overreach of our government that we experienced the last two years. Wrote letters to our mayor and our governor and said, if you continue this way, here are five reasons this church will not comply. The mayor, off the record, said, Pastor, absolutely, you should be doing that. And the governor ignored me entirely, but I don't expect anything different. So not only from the, the beast, which is represented by the, the, excuse me, the state, which is represented by the beast in Revelation 13, right? And we're seeing that in our culture, but also the false divisive teaching that comes from within, both from a conservative and progressive camp, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was told, if you don't say that the mask and the vaccine is a mark of the beast, you're not doing your job, really? Or if you don't say that wearing a mask and back, getting vaccinated is the most Christian-loving thing, you're not doing your job, really? And both of them are wrong. My point simply is people create false teaching and narratives and try to promote that in the church, and an elder's job has got to say, state, persecution outside, uh-uh. Internal division, mm-mm, that's not going to happen. Again, we can't go to one ditch or the other, stay in the third way, and the way this is done is found in verse 31 right there as we conclude. Notice what, what does Paul say? Be alert and his example. For three years, day and night, the entire time he was with the Ephesian church, he was committed and continued to teach them, to warn them, and encourage them. Friends, this is the leadership that God requires of his church. More importantly, this is the leadership that God provides for his church, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Human leadership will inevitably fail you. That's just the reality. Because every one of us, no matter how good an elder you might have, is a fallen, imperfect human being. This doesn't mean, friends, we get rid of the whole concept of leadership or church leadership in, in specifically. What it does mean is we can rest secure that we do have the leadership of one who perfectly carries out all the roles that elders imperfectly represent. Jesus modeled both perfect obedience to the Father and perfect self-denial as he went to the cross for those he was leading. So we see that in Christ himself. Christ was completely vigilant over his own life so that he could represent us perfectly before the Father, and he is perfectly vigilant over his people as he makes intercession for us every day. And so while we will never experience the kind of leadership that God would like for his people in each other, we get it in Christ. 
Last tip. Here's the application point, I guess, of this morning's sermon. Pray for the elders of Christ's community church. Pray for the elders of God's churches everywhere. Pray that they would be, that they would live up to the model we see in Scripture. We won't, ultimately, perfectly, consistently all the time, but we keep trying. Pray for us. That's how you apply this week's teaching. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.